This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit metalab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined this week by my absolute favorites in the entire world. I have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm feeling great. I have Twitter open just in case our entire show has to change while we're recording like it usually does. So let's hope for a eventful slash uneventful 30 minutes. We also have Danny Crichton here. Danny, this week has felt 10% more relaxed than, than the last couple of weeks. What do you think is driving that? I think there's been so many announcements. That all of them are done. That's it. That's the news for the year. We can close up shop. Look, if I turn off my email, the shop is closed. So it doesn't really Did you really raise if no one heard it? No. If a VC falls in the forest, does it get a post-money valuation? Anyways, <laughs> terrible jokes aside, here is the show for today. We are going to talk a little bit about the Snap acquisition of Fit Analytics that came out Thursday morning. We have notes on eToro's impending public debut and what it means for Robinhood. We have funding rounds from Copy.ai, Reva Health, Dutchie, Airtable, Squarespace, and we're going to close with a short meditation on the inequity in the global venture capital world. It's going to be a blast. Natasha, tell us about this first deal, Snap and Fit Analytics. Yeah, so Snapchat is getting into e-commerce. It has acquired this Berlin-based startup, Fit Analytics, that uses AI to help with sizing and shopping and just personalized tools to help retailers figure out how to get consumers to buy their products. It was an undisclosed price, so we don't know if it's a huge win for the startup, but we do know it's a signal that a big consumer social media company like Snapchat is taking yet another step into this kind of play. But this is not the first time we've seen Snap buy something. I mean, the company's made, it feels like a bajillion acquisitions. So this is just one in a, in a string of deals, I presume. Yeah. And I mean, it's not adding just a small team. There's 100 people at Fit Analytics. They're all based in Berlin. So it's going to be a substantial business. We'll feel it. You notice that there is a TechCrunch angle hidden in there. Yeah, there is. So back in the day, and back in the day, I mean all the way back until like October of 2011, back in that time, Fit Analytics was actually called UpCloud, and it launched at TechCrunch Disrupt Beijing. I almost said Berlin. That's the, the other B city we've had conferences. And so it's always fun to see startups that we've met or touched on back in the day show up and do cool things. So in this case, it became Fit Analytics, and now it is part of Snap. And what it will do, Danny is ensure that Snap continues to lose money a little bit longer with that new headcount. <laughs> this is always the potential for all these networks. You look at Pinterest, you look at Nap, you look at Instagram. It's always this e-commerce. That's going to be the solution to all media problems, all social media problems. I think it's amazing we're still in 2021. We're still trying to like right-size clothes on the internet. We've got like space rockets going up. We've got satellites everywhere. How are we still dealing with this problem? We're not. We fixed it. Everyone wears sweatpants now. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, like that's Third Love's entire business is we're going to get you a bra that fits you better than any other bra out there. Right. I took the quiz. I mean, I'm not going to roast a company, but it's also like 
it's crazy that we're in this world still. I agree completely. Can you just look at me and know everything about me? I mean, they still send me three shoes and they're like, pick which one works the best and then send the other two back. I'm too lazy to do that. Whenever I buy something, it's mine for life. I don't care if I buy like some shoes and they send me a bottle of ketchup. I'm like, well, these are my new shoes. Like, I, There's yes, no way I'm going to like box it back up and mail it, please. <laughs> I'm like, I will fit into this shoe. Well, talking about exits, we actually had another major exit, this time from Israel, eToro, a major player in the crypto and, and stock space. Alex, tell us more about that company. If you're in the US, you're familiar with Robinhood, maybe public, maybe M1 Finance. eToro is like Robinhood for the rest of the world. It's big in Europe. It does have some US users as well, but it's kind of the same idea. You know, free trading of stocks, free trading of cryptos, and it has grown to enormous size. And, and the news out this week is that it's going to go public via a SPAC. Sorry about talking about SPACs, but in this case, the company SPACing is very cool at a $10.4 billion valuation. And Danny, I love this. It's going to merge with FinTech Acquisition Corp 5 because I think the first four were already taken or busy or something. Like, I don't know what to make of that. But eToro will be the, the company that is listed and traded on the NASDAQ. This is actually a really interesting company. So it's 14 years old. The founder, Yanni Ostia, who we actually had on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt Berlin, the there other B city in 2019, back when we were allowed to you know, be in places. He actually has been like a lifelong trader. I mean, he was like a sort of a Wall Street bets guy, you know, 20 years before that was cool, day trading, you know, being super involved. And so when he started eToro, it was basically a no fee stock trading app that was designed to allow you to mirror trades from other folks. Over time, it has become much more centered around crypto. Yanni was particularly aggressive in getting into the crypto markets, I think, very early. And so eToro has just done phenomenally well. They had raised capital from a variety of investors, including Spark. And a lot of those folks, I'm sure, are going to be pretty happy. The exit is going to be pretty amazing, but it's based on a lot of actual value. The company did $605 million in revenue last year, up 147% year over year. And in January alone, it picked up 1.2 million new registered users, which, if I recall, is roughly three times its average pace for 2020. So it had a big 2020. And 2021 could be even more, more explosive. So I really get the timing of this. But also, I was really curious about the breakdown in crypto versus equity revenues. Natasha, are you impressed by that? Because I, I think you also dug through the numbers. It's interesting. So we know with Robinhood, crypto is a new-ish part of its business. With eToro, we see it really just strengthening its business. So Alex, you had a cool chart in your exchange column this morning about how eToro's crypto revenue grew immensely from 2019 to 2020. And so you know that the crypto hype is actually turning into actual numbers. It's fun to look at the more recent crypto results, but what I really liked was going back to the 2017-2018 era, because if you look at kind of like Q4 2017 and Q1 of 2018, eToro rode that Bitcoin boom super intelligently. They grew so much in 2017-2018, they actually shrank in 2019 because crypto kind of went away and they built the other side of their business up. And then 2020 was an all-time record year. But it goes to show, Danny, I think that the variability in trading revenues that you can see. Well, not only that, I, I think one of the magics to eToro is it was very focused on regulation very early and particularly regulation internationally. So as an Israeli company, obviously, Israel is a fairly small market and they went to Europe and they went to the U.S. super early. They actually were far more aggressive in Europe. I think they only went to the U.S., I want to say, in like 2016, 2017. It's actually a relatively new development yeah. for the company. 2018, right? So it's a very new development. They focus on Europe. So they were able to get into dozens of EU countries, but now they have 20 million users across 100 countries. So it's like a company that really focused on the global nature of fintech. And we just don't see that very often when so many companies just focus on the US domestic market. And to put this in perspective, according to its SPAC deck, which I can say without slurring the words, of their funded accounts, 69% are in Europe, 18% in Asia Pacific, 8% in the Americas, and then 5% in MENA. And so what this goes to show me is if you can build Robinhood in the US and kind of just the US market to be the size that it is, and you can build eToro that kind of owns Europe, 
there's going to be space for a lot of these players. Anyways, we're not going to go on too long about this. There's lots of other things to get through, but I, I will say free trading can be an enormous business. The company has a history of profitability. So I think it all bodes reasonably well for Robinhood. Although I will say at a roughly 10x multiple for its expected revenues this year, it's not getting software multiples and that could be an issue for Robinhood. But let's move on to something else entirely, which is going to be, and I love this, blood pressure via your smartphone. Given crypto prices going up and down, it's actually quite relevant to the crypto world. <laughs> I was so confused where you were going with that. Come on, man. You got to take advantage of that. That was so obvious. <laughs> Chris is giving a thumbs up. Yes. So the co-founder of Siri, Dog Kitlau, and a scientist, Tuhin Sinha, have teamed up to create Riva Health. The simplest way to describe it is it wants to use your smartphone to track your blood pressure in a clinically approved way. So a lot of the ones that are out there on the market right now are either not accurate enough for clinical usage, not FDA approved, or are hardware based. This is trying to be software. And that's the coolest thing. So when I read this, I was blown away by how they're going about this. Natasha, tell everyone how they use kind of a smartphone that you may already have to do this work because it's it's really cool. I asked them to explain this to me like probably three different times on the call just because each time it made a little bit more sense. <laughs> the best way to understand it is in order to monitor blood pressure, you need to get someone's blood pressure at a variety of different points whether that's standing or sitting up or lying down. What Riva Health wouldn't tell me is how they're going to do that part. But what they did tell me is how they're going to use the phone. They're going to make you turn on your phone camera flash, put it up against your finger. And similar to how, you know, you used to have like a touch ID on your phone to open it. It's going to calibrate your finger in a variety of different spots to use a light to track the blood pulse waveform. And I did not minor in biology or do anything STEM related. So hopefully I didn't butcher that. But the new part is, and the part that they're trying to get FDA approved, is how they're viewing the blood pulse waveform through that light to actually understand blood pressure. I majored in philosophy, so I'm very qualified to talk about this. <laughs> I think it's amazing. This is one of those times when technology seems to take not just an incremental jump, but like a big leap forward. Like imagine all the people out there who have to use blood pressure cuffs or go see their physician. Imagine if they can just scan their finger and get a quick and accurate representation of their current blood pressure. I mean, you could watch mine go up during the show as Danny annoys me with his segues. I mean, it would be amazing. I was going to say, every time I open up my inbox, I could look at my like diastolic and systolic pressures and go, oh my God, PR people, stop. The trick is to just never read your email. I could put that through Ift or like maybe a Zapier or Zapier. And, you know, I could actually track who drives my blood pressure highest. The highest, right, exactly. And just block those addresses. That's amazing. Like automatically. Literally a life hack right there. <laughs> it's it's, it's no-code hardware, software, personal automation, I think is what we'd call yeah. that. Guys, we should be founders. But no, Reva Health, the, the biohackers are very happy at what we're doing right now. <laughs> Reva Health, with their idea and not ours, <laughs> raised $15.5 in seed funding in a round led by Menlo, True Ventures. UC Health, the Colorado hospital systems, gave $5 million. Oh, that UC. Yeah, they wouldn't share their data or their published research with me, but they did say that because UC Health invested, it's enough validation or at least a signal that this is legit technology. But like, I have to give the disclaimer that it's early stage. They haven't shared their research and it's still going through FDA approval. Not only am I excited about all the sensors, but like more and more we're seeing machine learning and artificial intelligence get into the health space. So a few years ago, we saw Apple buying Cardiogram, which had raised money, I believe, from Andreessen and a couple of other folks. That was related to heart health. 
And then on the most recent Apple Watches, we saw blood oxygen levels. To me, what's interesting here is we're actually seeing a very slow ramp up of like we're getting better and better data across more and more biofactors. I think by 2030, we'll have diabetes covered. Yeah. We're going to have a ton of other, you know, blood sugar, whatever the case may be. That's the future. And to me, it's exciting. It's going to take time. It's taking a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of research, a lot of FDA approvals. I'm sure they're very busy these days with other things going on in the world. But my, my long-term belief is this is going to transform the way we do healthcare in the United States in the next 10 to 15 years. I want to give one point to Greg Yap from Mindlo Ventures, who's joining the board of the company, because he's not putting his investor money behind you know a high net dollar retention SaaS business. Here is some money going into things that could absolutely fail. Venture capital, that's what it's for. you know. So to me, it's cool to see kind of a crazy bet can really improve some lives. We'll see what happens. The final thing I'll say is obviously Doc sold Siri to Apple years ago. And so I asked, is this ever going to be sold to Apple? And this didn't make it into the story, but he did say it's something they'll explore. What's the best way we can make this a truly consumer business? They're starting by validating within hospitals. But the end goal is that this is as simple as opening up kind of like the heart rate monitor on your Apple Watch. Prescribing an app, not a medication is the phrase. Now that I know it's the Siri guys, my enthusiasm has gone away because Siri is not very good. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk about a round that I covered this week that I'm pretty excited about. Have you guys seen the tweets from the the founder of Copy.ai about how their startup is doing? I actually have. So Copy.ai is a company that I did not understand until recently, but I've been tracking it out of the corner of my eye because Paul, one of the two co-founders, has been posting monthly metrics of how they're doing. And I'm talking like MRR, customer changes, like all the stuff that I ask founders that they then don't tell me. (laughs) He was tweeting. Like it was amazing. And so I'm like, this is really cool. And, and the other side of it is it was growing pretty quickly. I mean, it had February MRR of 53,600. That was up nearly 50% from January. I mean, that's like Y Combinator level like growth, but it real. So I, I was very impressed with this. It raised a bunch of money. Well, it raised it not a bunch of money. It raised a little bit of money. 2.9 million. Craft Ventures led it. Lead Gen's Atelier Ventures was in there. Sequoia put in like 100K, I think. And it does like AI assisted writing to some degree. So how familiar are you two with GPT-3? I get it. I'm familiar. Okay. Natasha, because you get it, can you explain to the audience what it does? Basically, you can teach this program how to take a bit of information and make it into something bigger. So you could train a program. I mean, in this case, it doesn't seem too complicated, which was my question about copy.ai. It doesn't seem like it's too complicated to train someone to have a specific use of words and then string them together. Is that a fair explanation of GPT-3? It's close to what I think of it as. It's a it's an enormous AI model and you give it a couple of prompts and then you ask it to do something and then off it comes with words. And so these companies like Copy.ai and Headline are building kind of software around GPT-3 to let you do a lot. And this is all based around the idea that writing is very hard and most people hate doing it. Now, I happen to like writing. And so it's not really aimed at me, but like I really get for like everyone else, writing sucks. And so if you're a copywriter, if you're a social media person, if you need to come up with a headline or whatever, GPT-3 can help you do this. And so copy.ai is, uh, is software wrapped around that. It's really cool. After I covered this little $2.9 million pre-seed, seed round, whatever, I asked Twitter, I'm like, where can I go play with this? I want to go tinker. And so I went to Headlime and I had it write part of a blog post for me on the impact on startup valuations based on interest rate changes. And not only did it not suck, it actually brought in other points that I would have raised later on in the piece and it extended my writing. Oh, that's so scary. Yeah. And that's when I was like, well, one, I'm overpaid. And two, like, this is super, super cool. Like, remember the, the Reva Health leap in technology? That's what this felt like. It actually felt very impressive to me. I haven't actually been like faux giddy about a technology thing in a while, but the stuff that's underlying copy to AI, I think is freaking cool. There's a lot of great tools here, right? We've seen Grammarly come out. 
Hemingway, which is trying to make you write like Hemingway, but in the sense of Hemingway as boring writer, not so much Hemingway as great writer. But one of the things I think is interesting here is like this gets much closer to where I think the future needs to go, which is AI augmented humans, right? There are people who are good at writing. They need better copywriters. They need better tools to help them figure out basically a better clippy. And as bad as that sounds, like actually something that could be useful is like, hey, you missed three points here. Oh, you want to insert the revenues from this company that you're talking about right here in the exact moment? Instead of spending five minutes of me going through Edgar on SEC and trying to get that information, having it just insert would be magical. Yes. And that doesn't get rid of the originality of the writer or the style of the verb or the tone, but it would be an immense augmentation both from productivity and it also allows me to keep my thoughts much more pure. I can focus on what makes me human and original as opposed to like getting the logistics of language put together in, say, a business article, whatever the case may be. For sure. But what copy to AI does today? Because that's Danny's looking five years in the future when we have better, you know. I'm always looking in the future. I don't care. <laughs> Danny is a man of the future past. What copy to AI does is it generates a number of like suggestions for you. And then the human picks between them. Because when I was talking to Paul about GPT-2, the preceding generation, he said it would have flashes of brilliance amongst the dreck. But GPT-3 has a much higher hit rate, but it's not 100%. So there's no point where you hand off the stick entirely to the AI. But it's amazing to think about writers that are not pro-writers as more uh, editors and curators versus wordsmiths of their own, if you will. I can totally see copy.ai's use cases grow beyond just businesses that need copy editing. I mean, Grammarly's success is probably great news for copy.ai because Grammarly showed how much people are willing to pay for better writing or just yep. even tone itself. In fact, when I was reading this, Grammarly was like the only company in my head that I was like really curious if the founder had brought up to you or at all is viewing it as a competitive or a compliment. So uh, we're, we're splitting hairs a little bit here, but the way that I think about Grammarly is I, Alex, make words appear on a page. Grammarly says, this is probably wordy. This word sucks. You're missing a comma here. Grammarly is like, it's a polishing mechanism for your mm. human created writing. Copy.ai wants to give you seven suggestions for a thing that you then pick from and then tune yourself. So you could actually Grammarly your copy.ai slash GPT-3 created text. The maybe future. that's a stack. Maybe maybe yeah. Grammarly buys copy.ai. So basically what you're saying is in the future of the newsroom, you're going to have AI writers being yes. edited by AI editors, which will be copy edited by AI copy editors and published autonomously on AI-driven websites. And then read by ad fraud bots. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not afraid of blogging robots per se, but I like the idea of helping people do more. That to me is what this stuff can do. And I just think we're going to see more companies built on top of GPT-3. And we've already covered, I think this is the third startup round that TC has covered in the space. So something to keep an eye on, but I've gone on way too long. We are going to puff puff and pass the mic over to Danny to talk all about Dutchie. Yes. So as you know, people who get baked often go Dutch. And so Dutchie is a payments infrastructure app to help cannabis retailers sell their goods legally across different countries. As you know, credit card companies oftentimes don't allow you to use credit card payment gateways, bank accounts for things like cannabis, which is still legal under federal law. It's a scheduled drug. And therefore, there has to be other platforms and players in order to access that space. So Dutchie raised a $200 million round at a $1.7 billion valuation led by Tiger Global to empower dispensaries through a monthly fee to run their website, process their orders, and track pickups, etc. It's important to remember it's more than just a square or even a squire for cannabis shops to adapt to 2021 because cannabis is so complicated. There are so many legal restraints, as we just alluded to. 
hyper-local matters a lot because they're focusing a lot on like the relationships you have with how plants are cultivated and sold. And so I think a bet on duchy is also a bet in that the future isn't just ease and e-commerce. It's like we need to help these retail first shops stay afloat because they are the only way that these channels will really work long term. And there is so much money in this. Like we talk a lot about vertical SaaS on equity because vertical SaaS is, is huge. You would be surprised at the dollar throughput at legal dispensaries. So at a dispensary that may be right across the border in Massachusetts from where I live, if you were to go there, for example, with some money and wanted to buy some products, you would notice that people often buy the max they're allowed to buy per day. There's a cap on how much cannabis you can buy. That's going to cost you about 200 bucks, probably, give or take. And people just rotate through there. Like the, the line moves. They move product. And so they are doing an enormous number of transactions at a high dollar amount. So if this is like a vertical SaaS play that has like a transaction component built into it, Dutchie could be a damn fine enterprise. I'm enthusiastic about this. It did get repriced like by a factor of like eight since it's series B last August when it raised 35 million. So definitely Tiger Global is doing its thing and showing up here and just like going like, we'll just give you a ton more money at a much higher price. Good luck. So not only has the market expanded dramatically as legalization kicks in in more states, but it has to be much more successful just because of the pandemic. I mean, what are people doing at home? This last week, we had a piece about Houseplant, which is a new cannabis brand started by Seth Rogen, that Seth Rogen, and Evan Goldberg. And they are starting with three weed strains and a collection of kind of designed home goods around cannabis. I'll let you guys read the, <laughs> the TC exclusive. But one quote that I will mention that I think Goldberg told our reporter was that they hope that Houseplant does for cannabis what Apple did for computers and smartphones by turning an intimidating product into something anyone can use. Which Jokes aside, care for it because people at dispensaries can be super intimidating. Dude. And yes. cannabis in general. I'm with you in that entirely. But let's move along. Airtable has raised $270 million, Natasha. A Series E, I believe, at a, what should we call it, about a roughly $5.8 billion valuation. An enormous amount of money. What were your first thoughts when you heard this? My first thoughts were I need to grow up my understanding of Airtable from a super smart spreadsheet into something a lot more. Yeah. So so you and I, we live inside of WordPress and Google Docs because we're talking to people and we're writing and things down. And it's safe and warm and, and So kind. safe. Fuzzy. You know, <laughs> like I know where all the doors are, you know. And whenever I go into Airtable, which is pretty frequently these days because people love it, there's always a different UI setup and there's color coding and like all this crap. And then Danny sends like six more things look at it, it, it's complicated and terrifying but people love it because what it does do is not just spreadsheet replacement but allows you to have kind of a relational database that is very easy to manipulate and so people talk about it as a no-code platform to some degree because you can do so much with it it's almost like writing software inside of a spreadsheet which you can also view as a table which you can also view as a kanban etc so it's one of those things that like i know is amazing but it doesn't fit my current workflow as a demand. So I haven't put the time in to really understand it, though I can change views and add things and so forth. But I'm like, I'm a pretty basic user still. But apparently the whole world's using it because it just raised a $5.8 billion valuation. So certainly the traction on the paid side must be fantastic is my read. Totally. And I mean, the founder recently opened up Airtable's API, I believe, which would let developers create apps and actually do some of that building that you just mentioned. Obviously, if we could color code, we probably wouldn't be wouldn't be here. So <laughs> I, I this mean, is not for us. <laughs> I'm so glad I can't code because I don't have to code. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I, I would I would rather do my job. Just like though with Dutchie, this is a pretty fast repricing. It raised 185 million in a Series D last September. So this is a larger round in like I don't know six eight months. 
at a much higher valuation. So it's an impressive moment for this company. And what is it for? Well, they're going to put money into enterprise product development, which as we all know, things like single sign-on, higher security, HIPAA compliance, GDPR compliance, whatever the hell it is, is expensive and takes time. And also to ramp up an enterprise sales team takes a lot of time as well. But this is a company going towards an IPO. Now that I'm thinking about it, it feels like Notion is overdue for a raise at some point. I feel like Why? it's been almost a year since Notion raised. Why? And that was Who very can... dramatic. And now I'm like, Airtable has raised. Where's Notion at? Well, Airtable's a business. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, okay. I don't actually know anything about Notion's revenues. But, like, I mean, Airtable has, like, a quarter million paid companies on its service or whatever. Like, it's big. Like, Airtable has gone from being thing that your cool friends use to thing you have been forced to use to thing that everyone uses. That's the progression of software products. I will disagree, though, because Notion is all over TikTok. What? A ton of Gen Z people are using Notion to organize their lives, their classrooms. Go to hashtag Notion. Oh, actually, I did see Notion talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's getting there. But we will turn over <laughs> this debate, which I don't know where it's going, into Squarespace. Let's yes. talk about Squarespace, which helps businesses create websites. And it has raised $300 million at a $10 billion valuation. Danny, what are you thinking? Obviously, no code applies just as much to managing your docs and your workflows as it does to managing your storefronts. And so we've seen a bunch of companies come through. Wix is a major one. We talked about Shogun on the show years ago that was trying to improve your Shopify storefronts. Squarespace is a much more general purpose. I think a lot of them are stores, but it's not just related to stores. I see a lot of consultants, a lot of freelancers use it for their own websites. And so it's become super popular. It's also not only a New York company, but it's also a very unique New York company. So it was profitable as I want to say 2017 it was actually making, I want to say 300 million in revenues. And then just over the last couple of years, it just seems to have grown tremendously. I mean, this is a company that was founded in 2003. So we're almost hitting the two decade anniversary of the company to get you a sense of how long of a journey this has been. But just over the last couple of years, the valuation has gone from 1.7 billion to 10 billion. Um, it, it's revenues have presumably have grown extraordinarily fast as well in that period of time. Just a few months ago, we heard that they filed confidentially. They're not obligated to go public, but they are trying to file. They're getting approval from the SEC and getting feedback. Yes. And yet they raised another 300 million bucks. Now, that's not a huge amount of money, not a huge amount of dilution. So that's OK. But it is a little strange to confidentially file and then sort of raise capital sometime contemporaneously, either right before or right after. I don't know how long they waited to <laughs> announce it. So what is going on here? Alex is dancing. I think I have an idea. <laughs> have you heard about what Roblox did, which is they raised a bunch of money and then direct listed? So my question here is, are we going to see ye old Squarespace raise this 300 to 10 and then just go public in a DL? Why not? I mean, what else are they going to do? They don't need more cash. They've never been that cash consumptive. Back to Danny's point about profitability earlier on. And we don't know if that's adjusted EBITDA or, you know, gap net income or just positive free cash flow, whatever metric it is. But it implies a non-awful burn rate is what matters about that point. So they probably don't need that much cash. So this smells like the possibility of a direct listing. I'm not going to put my neck out there, but that, that was my first read at the moment. 1,200 employees, though. This is a big, big business. Like, that's just, it's just huge. They got a beautiful building here in New York. But talking about inequality, there are winners and there are losers. Unfortunately, they're not always equally uh, distributed across the population. Alex, you wrote a great piece this week talking about how global inequity in venture financing is staggering. Tell us a little bit about that. This is a story that came out of a, a Twitter conversation that I had. There was a guy on Twitter and he was, well, it was Dauda Berry, CEO of um, a UK-based esports startup called Adaplay Esports, which is actually pretty cool. He said, you know, hey, you know, startups in Africa have raised already 500 million this year in 2021, and they're going to beat their last year total of 1.4 billion. And I was like, well, one, that's great to hear because there's a lot of folks on the continent of Africa and there's lots of, you know, things that could be built there that should be relatively lucrative. Always cool to see entrepreneurs doing well. 
And then someone else chimed in and said, you mean all the startups in Africa have raised less money so far than Stripe raised in one round? And I was like, oh, that really does put it in perspective. So I did a little research. I poked around the numbers a little bit. If you look at the data at the current run rate, all the startups in Africa should raise about two and a half billion in 2021, which will be, I think, an all-time high for the continent. But to me, it highlighted the extreme inequality in access to funds because you know, we talk a little bit about Europe versus US and venture totals and how is India doing versus China, but we're really looking at like five places, you know, a couple of countries and a continent. And Latin America is doing better. That's great to see, et cetera. But like Africa is really just far behind. And we've seen IPOs from there with Jumia. We've seen acquisitions with, was it Paystack and PayPal? And so we know they can generate nine and 10 figure exits. It's just disappointing to me to see this be so inequitable this far into the kind of startup universe, if you will. These kind of pieces and this kind of context, I mean, equity is about the numbers behind the headlines after all. But I think that that kind of conversation is important. I think sometimes people can be like, that's too broad strokes or reductive. And it's like, we do need to talk about numbers in a way that everyone didn't just triple their valuation over a year. Because I think so many people right now, intentionally or not, are saying that anyone can raise. And if you can't raise, maybe you aren't ready for venture ever. And that's just not true. Eight zip codes in the US is what that is. It's not everywhere. One last data point, and then we have a small teaser to wrap up with. But I pulled some other data. And if all the startups in Africa raise 6x, their 2020 venture capital hall of roughly 1.4 billion, depending on how you count, this year, they will manage in the full 2021 what the UK has managed thus far in Q1 in terms of total dollar volume. That's how extreme this is. It's shocking. But Natasha, to close this out, tell us about crowdfunding and why it's relevant again. On Monday, the cap for equity crowdfunding grew from 1.07 million to 5 million. We're already seeing startups and venture firms take advantage of the idea of raising money from a community. We've talked about community a ton, and we will be doing a lot more about the pros, the cons, the things to look out for, because this isn't just easy money on our Wednesday show coming up with Sahil of Gumroad and Elizabeth Yin of Hustle Fund. It's going to be a fun show, and we will all be there. It is going to be a fun show. It's a really hot topic. We're seeing more and more startups coming out of accelerators and follow similar routes if they have kind of a, a fan base out there. So it's going to be fun to see. But Danny, Natasha, we are over time. We have to go. We're back Monday morning, everybody. Stay cool. Have a good weekend. <laughs>